This is the Erasing Shame Podcast, Season 5. Diverse Perspectives Discussing What Matters. Welcome to this episode of the Erasing Shame Podcast. We are talking about erasing shame about sex and sexuality. We're not going to cover everything you wanted to know about sex, but I was afraid to ask, but we will have a healthy and hopefully empowering conversation so that you can understand, enjoy, and express your sexuality and your whole being in life. We're honored to have a special guest all the way from north of the border, Tara Tang. She is an embodiment coach who works at the intersection of spirituality and sexuality. She helps people find their way back to their bodies, overcoming shame, yay, and dismantle purity culture. Tara has actively worked to advance the socioeconomic status of women, diminishing sexual violence and ending human traffic. She's a TEDx speaker, former Miss, America, uh, Miss Canada, and awarded and recognized in numerous other ways. Thank you, Tara, for joining us. Thanks so and, much for having me. And we have our co-hosts, George Shang and Leah Abraham. Hello, hello. Hi. I'm well, excited to be with you guys today. Talking about my favorite thing so for the sexuality. <laughs> um, to begin, I'm really curious to hear about the messages we all received about sex as we were young, um, especially growing up in Asian households. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'll start. This is Tara. And um, I mean, it wasn't something that was talked about. I don't know about you guys and your experiences, but it, it pretty much wasn't something that was talked about. Um, I do remember in the very beginning, um, I was probably about five because my mom would have been pregnant around that time with my, um, my younger sibling and that the conversation around sex came up there because where babies are made. And I got a very biological answer to how babies are made. And then it was never talked about again. It was never, ever talked about again. Um, and anytime it did, when I was coming of age, um, you know, in my early teens, going up through my own um, awakening to the fact that my sexuality is a part of me, something we all kind of start to experience around those times, that's normal, natural human development. And um, at that point, that's when the shame came in. Shame wasn't really part of the story when it came around my sexuality as much when I was younger, except that, well, I guess that's probably not entirely true. Um, I overheard conversations where my mom was talking to other moms in the neighborhood um, and talking about kids that were exploring each other's bodies, which again is part of normal, natural human development for young elementary school age children. And um, there was the shame around it in the sense that when there was one boy in the neighborhood that started, um, he invited a young girl in the neighborhood to, you know, kind of the I'll show you mine if you show me yours conversation, because kids are curious about their bodies and they're curious about how other people's bodies look different than their bodies. Right. And it, I think it really um, all comes from. In these innocent places and normal, you know, human sexuality shows that that is very developmentally appropriate for those ages. 
But what's hard for us is that even if we're going through something that is really natural and something that is really normal and inherently part of our humanness, um, it often gets, we don't know how to navigate these things, right? And so these kids are trying to figure it out in the neighborhood and trying to figure out, oh, why does your body look different than my body does? A really innocent, beautiful, natural curiosity question. They were then met by these moms who pulled them apart and really shamed the little boy and said, oh, well, this boy is bad now. They isolated him and ostracized him from the rest of the neighborhood and the community because he was almost, they treated him as if he was predatorial because he was curious rather than sitting the children down and having a conversation about, yeah, well, this person's body looks different because of this and your body looks different because of that. Right. And so um, now that I'm thinking about it more, that was probably my first experience of hearing from other people, these conversations that were happening that, oh, because these kids are being treated as bad because they expressed curiosity and they tried, they explored their bodies together. Now, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be treated as bad. I don't want them to be shamed in front of all the neighborhood moms. I don't want to be ostracized from the rest of the community because he wasn't allowed to play with anyone anymore. And so we internalize that message. And our bodies are so brilliantly so smart to be able to try to keep us safe. But then we learn those coping mechanisms. So then what I learned by overhearing this conversation that was happening about between these other two neighborhood moms and these other two neighborhood kids, I learned, well, my questions aren't safe then. So I just stopped asking questions and it became a topic that was not talked about until I got into my teenage years. And it then became very clear. You don't date. You don't talk to boys. Um, being, being interested in, in the same gender wasn't something that was even part of the conversation. So I was never given an opportunity to just to explore. Do I like boys? Do I like somebody else? I don't even really know, but it was very clear. Don't talk to boys. Don't hang out with boys. Don't date boys. And we'll just deal with that when you're older, but there was never any time when then all of a sudden it was okay for these questions or it was okay for these explorations. So that was the, the background that I came from. And then on top of that, not just growing up being Asian American in a predominantly white neighborhood and all the complexities that are there, but then also growing up as somebody whose family went to church all the time. And so then there was the added messages that I was raised on about how sex outside of marriage was inherently sinful or how being a member of the LGBTQIA was inherently sinful somehow. And so again, these, these, these conversations around sex and sexuality were really seen as off limits and was not something that felt safe to explore or even to question about. Mm, thanks for sharing, Tara. I feel like there are so many elements that so many of us could probably like really um, recognize in our own stories. Yeah. Uh, I can go next if that's okay. Um, so I found out about what sex was in a really dramatic fashion. <laughs> um, my mother uh, had an architectural business when we were in India and I was in her office one day. I was really young and I was going over some of her paperwork because I was bored. And I kept seeing like, I think they were just uh, like information about employees and such. And so I was like, saw, saw like that little column that said sex, F, M, and I could not figure out what it was. So I go and ask my mom, what is S-E-X? And 
she freaks out. Like any typical Indian auntie who's extreme, who has extremely conservative views, she just like, she's like, oh my gosh, I did not expect this conversation to happen right now. Um, and then she proceeds to tell me it's what bad people do. <laughs> um, which I find hilarious because I think that just, this is sort of my mom's fear of me understanding it and her fear of me being curious about it before I got married. Right. And so the way she tried to save me from that is saying, this is mm -hmm. what bad people did. And that did really paint a picture for a long time. It's like, Oh no, that's what bad people do. Um, and it's just really interesting now, Tara, as you were talking, I was sort of thinking back into sort of my story and how that narrative has sort of evolved because, um, in Indian culture, especially when arranged marriages are a thing, like we also grew up where like, I was like, I couldn't think about boys, look about boys or date boys or anything. And all of a sudden when you're in a marriageable age, like they're like, why haven't you found a partner yet? Right. Yeah. Um, as if like we we're expected to go from zero to hundred, like overnight and they get like parents can get upset at you if you don't follow that trajectory. And so I definitely, I think my story and understanding the nuances of sex, definitely, I was like, I understand that my, the expectation, the story that's placed on me is supposed to go like this. And I don't know. It's just, it's just really fascinating because especially right now in my own personal journey of decolonization, sort of understanding um, my roots of where I come from and why is my family the way they are? Or why are my ancestors just the way they are? Um, it's extremely, it, there's an added layer for me because um, the context of India and the context of South India, the context of how, especially the place where I am from in India used to be a matrilineal line until British colonization changed that. And wow how sexualization and the how yeah just how women's sexuality and sexualization and how caste also plays a role in how that's all played out so I'm sort of in the season where I'm undoing and I'm learning I'm just learning a lot about that and so thinking about that really funny story about my mom saying that sex is for bad people I'm kind of starting to like connect it back to like oh, these are just generational things. Like this is a generational narrative that's being shaped and passed down. And now that, I've, now that I'm married and I'm um, like, what is the story I want to cultivate and pass down to the next generation, right? right. And so I find this, yeah. So that's kind of why I'm really excited about this conversation to sort of help me find more answers about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this is an exciting conversation, of course, in a number of different ways. Uh, I've got to introduce my voice. Uh, this is DJ Chuang, one of the co-hosts. Um, I'm Chinese-American, can you ask A? And my answer is pretty short. We, we didn't talk about sex growing up. And my conception through my school years was just focus on school. Sex is something that happens after you get married and it's to create children. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Anything outside of those parameters would be similar, implicitly wrong. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. But I'm, you know, in in today's time and age, and as I've grown up, I realize it's there's so much more to it. And so mm-hmm. I hope we can open it up and raise shame about. Yeah. Yeah, I think as as I'm listening to to each of you process and kind of share your stories, like I'm doing a whole bunch of deconstructing in my mind. And um, you know, I think I think one of uh my major, I guess, pitfalls in my experience, right, is um, my parents immigrated after the Vietnam War in the late seventies. Um, and they're, they're coming from, you know, refugee camps and the mountains and, um, forests of Thailand and, and, and Laos, right. Um, they have no clue, right. What sex education is. They have no clue what pornography is. They have no clue what, any of these things are and and culturally right being Hmong um like there's there's a huge shame factor when it comes to to sex and especially sex outside of marriage right um I grew up uh like knowing that if I had sex outside of marriage and I got caught doing it that I would marry that person like it happens and and you know I, I was in junior high and you know, friends are getting married, right? Because they're getting caught and, and the families, you know, there's, there's this huge shame factor around it. And the families are like, no, we can't, we can't have the shame fall on our family. So now you guys got to get married. Otherwise this isn't going to, um, to look good on, on either of our families. Um, and, and so there's, there's all those pieces that go into just really recognizing how much shame, you know, was, was built up in, in our communities and in our culture around sex. And, um, you know, so that, you know, really impacts the way that I had to wrestle through, um, growing up with technology and then all of a sudden pornography is accessible to, to me in public libraries. And I don't know what's right and wrong at, you know, the age of 13, 12. And, you know, it's like, you you just are trying to figure it out while at the same time knowing that there's some level of shame around the experiences that you're having and um and yet nobody's able to talk about it nobody's able to um really say anything to it other than don't do that right um and so there's yeah just a lot of that work that i think uh not just myself, but a lot of even our our listeners and our audience are probably trying to figure out for themselves around how do they erase this the shame that that exists in their own understanding of their sexual experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also interesting. And I think um, for me, being a somatic practitioner who helps people come back to their bodies, but also, you know, noticing the way that our bodies hold on to the narratives that we're introduced to, uh, whether that be from our family of origin, from our community, from our culture, um, something that maybe somebody told us was true. So we believe it, we picked it up, we hold on to it. 
or something that like in my experience, just witnessing the way people were talking and interacting around me, you know, when, you know, these two children were discovered that were exploring their bodies together and exploring their curiosity and noticing the way that they had shame imposed on them and then social isolation imposed on them. You know, we can, we can witness these belief systems that are either introduced to us from our parents, you know, like what Leah was describing, or we can witness them played out around us, like what George and I are are describing. But all of this shapes our worldview and it shapes the the beliefs that our bodies hold on to, that we believe then, oh, well, someone told me sex is what bad people do. So I internalize that belief. And then if I have sex, am I bad? And then that's where that shame starts to come in, right? And what does shame do? Shame disconnects us from ourselves because we always want to keep ourselves safe. That's how humans are wired, right? That's how humans have survived so long. So we've learned how to adapt and keep ourselves safe. And how that happens on then a biological level says, I want to remove that thing from me. But when it comes to sexuality, it comes to things of the body and it comes to that shame around sex and sexuality, what do we have to remove? We were actually remove our bodies from ourselves. We distance our bodies from ourselves, and it creates this disconnection and this disembodiment within who we are as people, where we feel like this entire part of who I am, my body is part of who I am, my body is me, and I am my body. I have to distance myself from that, and my sexuality is expression of who I am, and I have to distance myself from that too. And so we just feel like it's something that is so taboo that it's off limits, and it's off limits because if I interact with it when I'm not supposed to, I will be bad. People will walk away from me or like what George, what you're describing, like you feel like, oh, now I'm going to be trapped in this forever. That's, that's, that's a, wow. Um, That's, that's huge. And, And I think it's so difficult, right? Because especially in this day and age where sexuality has become more and more of an open and an acceptable conversation to be having, right? Uh, Leah, like you were saying, it's a generational thing yeah. where we're really trying to figure out what the right way to look at sexuality is and to know that right there are so many people in the world who have been impacted uh, by um, issues from cultures like purity culture and, and you know, other uh, conversations, whether it's uh, within the church or just in society in general, right? Um, there are a lot of broken people then who are feeling this disembodiment because of the shame that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we the hard thing as well with with that shame around our sexuality is that it comes from such an intimate place in who we are right? It's such a tender, vulnerable, intimate place because our sexuality is is something that can be often very tender and vulnerable um, and a very, very dear, close place to who we are, right? And so 
for some people, it's like, it's no big deal, right? <laughs> for some people, it's like, um, you know, having sex with new partners, different partners, casually, non-attached. It's like, it's just a thing, right? And for so many other people, it can be something so deeply personal. And I think, again, that goes back to a couple of things. It goes back to, you know, how are we wired as individuals, but also what are the messages that we've absorbed from relationships around us or from the environment and culture that we're raised in, right? Um, you know, for myself, I realized, and, and this is why I, I love language so much, is it can teach us new things about ourselves. But I learned that I identify as demisexual, which is maybe some an identity that a lot of people like. Are you guys familiar with that? Have you heard of demisexual before? So some yeses and some no. So for me, I I hadn't heard about it until recently, but it's actually on the ACE spectrum where demisexual, you can be a very, very sexual person, but you need to experience it within what you feel is a safe container. So when I develop a, a sense of safety and trust and emotional connection with somebody, then I feel safe enough to open up sexually. And I think that like whether, you know, all of these things are spectrums, all of these things people can identify with on varying degrees. But one of the things that I've learned is that for so many of us, when it comes to things of our body, we have to feel safe in order to proceed, right? Otherwise, we often get that autotomic, very primal response. The autotomic nervous system comes up where you get that fight or flight response, right? And for some people, if you've grown up in a situation that has, has always felt really chaotic, that actually is what feels safe and familiar to you. Right. And so sometimes people are coping mechanisms is like, oh, I like I like that, like racy, like I want to have sex with a stranger and I just want to be like pushed up against the wall. And I don't know, want to know what's happening. And and that can feel really safe and exciting for somebody. Maybe that's living out and enacting our fantasies. Maybe it's also one of the ways that we learn to be safe because we feel safe in uncertainty. We feel safe in the unknown. So we crave the unknown where for me, I often like I love to get, get to that place where I feel safe enough with some to fully express the whole spectrum of my personhood in a, a situation where I feel really safe with that in, 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 with that individual. But if I don't feel that safety with that individual, sex isn't something that is even on the table. I'm not even thinking about it, even though I'm a very deeply sexually expressive person. So I love the complexities of that. And I love that sex gives us that opportunity to explore the fullness of our humanity. I often say with my clients, you know, sex is everything and everything is sex because <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. they'll come to me and they'll be like, well, I'm struggling because I think maybe I have low libido or I can't orgasm with my partner or I just hit this wall and my body shuts down when I'm with my partner and I can't figure out why. And then all of a sudden we're talking about like early childhood memories and they're like, how are these things connected? <laughs> but they are because sex mm -hmm. is everything and everything is sex yeah. and sex is that this yeah. playground where we get the opportunity to express that full spectrum of our personhood. And for those of us who are adults, we don't have enough play in our life. We don't have enough opportunities mm -hmm. where we can really explore these things that are all the different parts of who we are in a way that hopefully feels really safe. And sex is one of those beautiful ways in which to do that. Mm -hmm. But in order to get to that point, we have to deal with all those narratives and those messages that we're holding on to that are maybe keeping mm -hmm. us feeling unsafe because we're still trapped in that shame cycle and that doesn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. Well, Tara, what you described sounds 
pretty normal and healthy that most people do want to have that safety. And I think yeah. it was Esther Perel and some other podcasts that I listened to that uh, what really makes healthy sexuality work for most people is safety and also the play. Yeah. The, the dynamic of that, and that security and the for so fun. many different people. That's sure. the thing, right? Yeah. And then uh, the other thought that came to mind is so much of what we do know about sex because we don't have a good, healthy framework and appreciation for our body and its sexuality is shaped by movies and television, yes. which is so driven by fantasy, so driven by the extreme, it sets, sets all of us up for unrealistic expectations. Yeah, yeah. And then when we don't have a safe or we don't have an appropriate place to express our sexuality, then it comes out sideways because we suppress it and then we have abuse and then we have sexual trafficking and all the ugly side of it because we don't have the good story that's being properly yeah. shared. In. Yeah. Tara, you said that you were a somatic practitioner. Can you help us understand what that is and what that entails and how yeah. you found this calling? Yeah, totally. Um, so somatics come from the word soma, which is the Greek word of the body. So it's really the study of the way that the body functions, the way that the body expresses. And it's looking at a combination of, of neurobiology. It's looking at a combination of our biophysiology, the actually the like the biological way that our body experiences life, but it looks at it in relation relation to a holistic personhood. So how does our body experience safety? How does our body hold on to emotion? How does our body process emotion? How do we interact with the wisdom and knowledge that is inherently within our body? Because honestly, truly, I believe that our bodies are so wise. And this is one thing I love of, you know, being biracial and being, you know, somebody who comes from both Western and Eastern cultures. And something that I see very often in our Asian heritage is these philosophies that are mind, body, soul, spirit, right? That look at more of the whole personhood. When we go all the way back to Western thought, all the way back to like Plato, Aristotle, and, you know, even they were influenced actually by early Egyptian mystics, where it was this idea of this separation between body and spirit that, you know, we know that the Hellenistic philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, etc., like they were, they were very big on the mind, right? They said that the body is the prison of the mind. And throughout Western history, and no matter where in the world that you come from, you know, I'm, I'm a Chinese Singaporean on my dad's side. And so that was colonized by, by Western cultures, right? And so this idea of Western thought has been spread through the politics of colonization, and the power dynamics, more importantly, of colonization. And so it's influenced so much. And so, you know, these ideas that we need to, um, like Cartesian dualism, where we need to actually split, there's this mind-body split between who we are, that the mind is more important, the thought, the intellect, uh, philosophy, spirituality, we prioritize these things as better. 
And then we have this negative connotation to things that are of the body. And this has always existed in Western thought, right? We say like, oh, carnal knowledge, that just means knowledge of the body. And yet when I say carnal knowledge, it has this like, oh, like dirty, racy, sexual, like this dark shadow side, like this is knowledge that we're not supposed to know. It's like off limits. It's taboo. It's this is sexy, racy. You you have to just talk about it behind closed doors. We have to whisper it, right? It's shameful to discuss. Whereas things of the mind and of the intellect are very prized. And those of us who come from an Asian American culture, we have always been encouraged to have our academic pursuits by our families, right? We've been encouraged to, to spend our time thinking about the intellect or, you know, even if we're looking at it from a spiritual perspective, we're encouraged to do things like meditation often, but so much of that is encouraged in the direction of separating ourselves from the body. But what does it look like to feel into these meditations, perhaps? What does it look like to feel into, to, to have an embodied movement meditation as one example? That's something that I lead classes on. And we, rather than trying to rid ourselves of thought or to have more mindfulness and spend our time in the mind, mind over matter. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase before, right? We spend our time prioritizing the things of the mind. How do we actually come into relationship with the body? How do we listen to the body? How do we be guided by the body? Believing not that the body is going to be this, this, depraved thing that is going to lead us astray down this path to darkness, but maybe the body actually holds goodness. And that's what somatics is, is looking at the body with the the lens and the framework of what can the body teach me here? What can the body show me? And how can I experience the body through right relationships so that I can reclaim the full personhood? that I am. That's what it means to be embodied. That's what embodiment is. And the way that we get there is through the path of somatics. That's experiencing the body. That's so helpful. I have a question that's sort I'm still forming it. So there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So let's say you are helping someone, helping an Asian American figure out how do we undo the shame? How do we get in connection? But I still have to think about the fact that they are an, an Asian American in North America, right? Mm-hmm. Like a minority body in essentially whiteness. Um, yes. how, when you're helping them undo a lot of that shame, like how does that sort of identity factor and that their ancestors and their cultural heritage, like how do you work with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's so key and that's so important because, again, like we said, kind of as a through line through this whole conversation is that our bodies adapt to the environment around us, right? It's, It's because we're wired for survival. Our body is wired for survival and our mind is wired for survival. But the way that they approach that is two different ways. And so with that being said... When we're looking at the way that we exist and show up in the world, it's important to have that framework still, right? So yes, if we're Asian American that's living here in North America, either ourself or somebody in our lineage has immigrated here, 
right? So there was this leaving of our ancestral homes to come here to this land that is predominantly white dominated now because of colonization. Again, not ancestrally that way in North America, but now in modern day North America is predominantly white dominated. Um, and we are, what happens to us in our bodies when we're treated as other, when we're treated as differently, right? Or even that experience of if we're still in um, Asia, what does it look like for those of us who grew up in colonized nations, right? Me and my family in Singapore, you know, so much of, of Asia has been colonized, right? And so we have to look at, to answer your question, we have to look at the way that we exist and show up in the world as individuals and in relationship with one another, whether that be emotionally or platonically, sexually, the way that we exist in relationship with one another is heavily influenced by our environment because our bodies are always trying to protect us, right? So say, for example, what does that look like? So say, for example, we came here and I'll, I'll, I'll talk from the perspective, perspective that I exist in, which is the intersections of biracial Asian American woman um, who's also bisexual and um, the way that I started to formulate my identity while picking up these messages that are handed to me from my family about sex and sexuality, but also handed to me from society that I've absorbed from my environment. Because again, our bodies are always somatically scanning our environment to look for threats of danger and how do I keep myself safe? I might not be running away from a threat of danger from a predator, right? And like we're looking at from an animalistic primal sense from the food chain, but there are threats of danger socially all the time. You know, I talked about the story at the beginning of the podcast where, you know, these, these two kids were um, exploring their bodies, parents found out about it, and one of the, the little boy was shamed and ostracized. Well, that's a threat then. And so we see the way that other people are then shamed by their, for their sexuality or for their actions, the way that they choose to act on that sexuality or that expression. And then we go, oh, that's not safe. So I pull back, Right. So for me, in the body of a uh, uh, assigned female at birth, a cisgendered Asian American woman, biracial, I grew up seeing, oh, I am safest when I'm in relationship with people, when I have that safety and that belonging. And how do I get that safety and that belonging through relationship? I learned to be the beautiful girl. I wanted to be sexually desired. I wanted to be smart. I wanted to be also the good girl. That was really important to me because that is often, um, that was a message that I absorbed from my community being Asian American is that I wanted to be the good girl and I wanted to be smart and don't take up too much space. Don't have too many of your own opinions, um, but be smart and be sweet and be cute and um, be desirable, right? And so it's this fine line where we all want that belonging. We all want that connection because, again, from a, on a primal level, humans are really just pack animals. So we look, we're wired for connection, we're wired for community, we look for relationships, and we look for belonging because our survival is attached to that. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, and life-giving thing. 
But at the same time, when we're not operating out of that sense of safety, then what I saw represented in the environment around me was this over-sexualization of Asian women and really this fetishization of Asian women, right? Where we see what is the inherent beauty of Asian women. And there's a whole spectrum of what that looks like. But that because I saw that like that is where these women are getting their safety from, I almost self-fetishized and self-objectified myself and sexualized myself in order to access that because that was the dominant narrative for my, quote, archetype here in North America, right? And so, you know, this has been widely studied. This is something that, like, tell me if you're listening to this, if this is something you've observed or if this is something that you've experienced in yourself, you know, but... I think that it that if we were to take a step back and kind of look at this from a wider perspective and also with the knowledge of the way that we interact in relationships as we're always looking for safety and looking at the influence of um, politics and power dynamics and, and the history and the intergenerational trauma where, you know, I know my family fled war and things like that in, um, you know, my family fled China went to Singapore and then left Singapore coming here to Canada, right? And so you have all of these traumatic things that have happened and trauma isn't something that you experience. Trauma is what happens inside your body as a result of what you experienced, right? And so we've all experienced trauma in some sort of way. And again, being Asian American and immigrated here, to Canada, whether you're first generation, second, third, fourth, or where you, or whether you immigrated yourself, you know, we've all had to then adapt from our survival with also the impacts, not just of who we are as individuals, but also uh, for the intergenerational um, connection and trauma, perhaps there that we've inherited as our parents learn to cope and survive as our grandparents learn to cope and survive. So when we're talking about our sexuality and how we express our full personhood there, it's really the culmination of all of those things. And one of the ways that that showed up for me, like I said, was that sexualization of of Asian women and how I saw that represented and then took that into my own self. So for me, it's been unlearning that so that then I can get to, well, what is my healthy sexuality on my own terms rather than that being dictated to me. I know there's a lot there. Yeah, I feel like lying in bed and processing everything because that's mm. good. Like you've given me a lot to think about. Um, and we we did talk a few months ago about the Atlanta shooting. Um, yeah. And how that was a result. And it was interesting seeing Asian American leaders having to explain to non-Asians and um, why that Asian fat is I said, I can never say this word, (laughs) (laughs) like, right. Like it was this first, uh, first time since at least since I've been in the United States where um, I've heard like a national conversation about this is a problem because of this. Um, And I also saw and heard a lot of people not hearing that and not not be not being able to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I'm making a lot of connections. So if I look spacey, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, um, yeah, you're processing in your mind and in your body, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think it's interesting too how we 
again, we pick up these narratives. So, um, you know, I'd love, I'd love to hear um, from the, some of the people, you know, from DJ or from George, if you have different experiences that maybe Leah and I um, didn't experience the same path, but, you know, I found that like this over-sexualization of Asian women was a big thing. Um, the fetishization of Asian women, the submissive archetype was something that I saw huge um, in, in just exploring identity. And again, remember, like, again, I, I grew up in like a, a church. Mm. I, I grew up as, you know, the only one of two um, Asian families in an all white community. Um, and then also, uh, yeah, growing up, uh, growing up, yeah, Asian American, primarily white dominated growing up in the church. So it was all of these environments where women are expected to be submissive, Hmm. right? Where women are, were expected to be, um, good and to serve and to be polite. And I remember when I was uh, in my early, um, dating my ex-husband um who's also asian american you know when i met his mother for the first time i was like oh here you go sit in the front seat i'll sit in the back and she made this comment of like oh like look at you're such a good asian girl right <laughs> because yeah. i had that like you know i'm trying to show respect i'm trying to show service i'm trying to be like oh here you go ahead you take the seating and you know it's something that i see all the time when my family gets together they're all fighting over who sits where they're all fighting over who's going to pay the check, right? So you're always being taught to put other people ahead of yourself. I was taught, oh, you know, always fill up the tea glasses when we get together, when we're sitting at dim sum and things like that, right? Like if you ever see somebody's tea that is starting to get low, you fill it up, right? All of these ways that we show honor and respect in our society, but then how do we internalize this into all areas of our life? because we can't compartmentalize who we are. We, all of these things impact who we are. And so again, this is why I say sex is life and everything is sex is if we're taught, if we're trained and taught to do that all the time, socially with one another, what of these ideas do we then bring into the bedroom with us? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think a huge piece to this conversation is recognizing and understanding that, most, if not all of the societal structures that um, at least modern, right, uh, cultures are, are in, right, have been developed through patriarchal yeah. structures, right? And so uh, most systems are set up to serve cisgender men, right? And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a very difficult space especially I think for myself and and you know I, I probably am speaking for for a lot of men right who um, have grown up in a society where I can do no wrong right mm-hmm. and um, you know we we don't have to challenge so much the, mm-hmm. the thoughts that we have and um, the experiences that that we we experience and we can kind of go through knowing that you know for for the most part, a lot of our experiences are going to just be normal, right? right. I think um, as an Asian American man, right, um, and one who comes from the Hmong culture, right, which is very patriarchal, right? Uh, women are, you know, any gathering are in the kitchen cooking, prepping, preparing, and uh, serving the food, and then the men are the first ones to eat, right? And then the women don't have a place to sit when they eat; they just go back into the kitchen and eat and gather in the kitchen, right? And like that's a that's a 
constant image that I grew up with, right, um, which I was, you know, always super con- confused by, mm. right, but as a kid, you're just like, oh, yeah, great, I get, I get to eat first, right, <laughs> you know, think about it, but growing up, right, there was also this space in which my dad showed me how to honor women well, and mm. there wasn't this you know, I mean, there, there was still this, you know, you're a son and you're going to, you're the person who's going to bring me face, right? My sisters, regardless of their achievements, right, weren't going to, to bring the same kind of face that, that I as a son was going to, right? So there are those pieces to, to wrestle through, but also um, he honored my mom, like all the time, right? Mm-hmm. He taught us to care for her and to love her well. And um, and, and always, you know, showed love and affection to her in ways that we felt like, oh, yes, this is what a healthy, loving relationship is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And then I grew up, you know, with a lot of women in my life, because growing up, a lot of them, the guy friends or the guys that I would normally have grown up with, um, they, they ended up moving or, uh, one of them was was deported and you know so I grew up in church hanging out with all the girls playing you know school and house and you know they would put makeup on me and you know we would just have a good time and it wasn't a big issue but it also you know allowed me to connect with you know a, a more feminine side that you know I think a lot of people would be like oh you know like what's what's going on with George right right um, but at the same time I still I mean I had my my masculinity and I had you know my identity as a cisgender male so um yeah. all of this to say you know I think uh for for us as men there's there's not a whole lot to challenge because we're we're still being served in this arena right right um but at the same time there's so much to deconstruct because we're now recognizing, oh, you know what, like, there's a lot of things that aren't right about society. I, I, I think about my sisters, I think about my wife and, and her struggles and her stories, right? And I'm like, things shouldn't have been this way, right? right. Um, and so I guess my question, um, if, if we have time for a question, would just be how do we as cisgender men, right, um, really begin to wrestle and where do we start with, you know, questioning and, and re, you know, reevaluating mm-hmm. um, our views on, on sex, on sex and on sexuality and, mm-hmm. and, and where's a healthy place to start? Yeah. yeah. And I would add to that, there's, there's some overlap of sex and sexuality, as you just said several times, sex is life and life is sex. Um, but there is some difference in terms of what sexuality yeah. Uh, is as we have this conversation as well as sex. And uh, let me kind of circle around what we talked about and steer it towards a certain direction that um, as Asian and Asian American women have been fetishized and objectified through a lot of media and through other behaviors, Asian and Asian men have been de-objectives and become undesirable and there's data to back that up on apps like tinder asians are the least rated uh, in terms of desirability and um, Mm. being wanted in the arena of dating and sex yeah and so we could spend hours and 
months and years for deconstruction and looking at all the problems of sexuality because we have so many problems. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to also see us add to the conversation, point us towards what can be healthy so that we can move move towards um, life and freedom and enjoyment Mm -hmm. rather than feeling because because if our body is just fighting against something, I don't think that's good use of energy. Right. For one, you know, how, you know, as your experience in this embodiment, how can we also move towards healthiness Mm -hmm. in the midst of a diverse environment where uh, population wise, people wise, because we are pack oriented, a large percentage will want a traditional defined role. Right. But there are also many, as we're discovering, that need the room to discover and explore their unique expression of what sexuality feels and looks authentic to who they are on the inside. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's an important distinction to make, right? Because our sexuality is that expression of our personhood through our sexuality. And that's that full spectrum of emotion and play and um, interaction, right? How do we express this part of ourself that is our sexual self? Even if we find ourselves identifying on the ace spectrum, right? Ace, asexual, um, demisexual is even on that spectrum as well too. Even if we're like, well, I'm asexual. Um, so how do you express your asexuality, right? That's still part of your personhood, right? It doesn't have, and it doesn't have to look the way anyone else's expression is, but that's what the sexuality is. It's that part of our personhood. Whereas sex is where do we get to in a healthy way, interact with that expression, right? That's the actual act of that enjoyment and again that's also an expression that's also a a full spectrum that's not just one thing right and so I think it's really interesting what you um, have described not just in our personal individual experiences but then socially right whereas like like what you mentioned like there can be shame and there can be even like harmful narratives that are imposed socially uh, because of our landscape on, um, you know, Asian women are supposed to either be submissive on one side of the spectrum or the other archetype is like the dragon lady archetype, (laughs) right? Like very dominant. It's like one or the other, right? Where it's not a full spectrum of expression. And then for men, you're right. There's there's a lot of like Asian men are often not... um, seen especially here in North America as like they're not seen as masculine right and and they're often the way that that Asian American men are portrayed in mass media is not as like I mean I just watched Shang-Chi and like that was amazing to see um an Asian male superhero in the Marvel universe. But that's the first time I've seen that as like the lead man. And that was amazing. And so my hope is that maybe these things are starting to shift and starting to change. We're starting to see representation like, you know, with like BTS uh, being like this massive K-pop craze, right? And we're starting to see like, I remember a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a youth camp and all the girls were like obsessing, like fangirling, like we did over like, in sync and backstreet boys back in the day (laughs) right 
we were obsessing over our like boy band crushes and they were obsessing over BTS in the same way. And so it was really cool to see a little more of that representation, but still people can feel trapped into these archetypes. Right. And I see this a lot in my work as well, too. One of the narratives that I noticed often coming up with my clients was I felt pushed into a box. I felt pushed into a box. I felt pushed into a box. I hear this the same phrase over and over and over again. And in the when we're talking in the context of our sexuality, people would often feel like I can't express that full spectrum of my personhood through sex or through my sexuality because I feel expected to be a certain way or like what Leah said I want to show up in a different way but that's what bad people do right and so we feel like we can't access it and every time that I hear that I just want to ask you know when someone says oh I feel pushed into this box I want to say well who benefits from you being in that box right because there's that that's always a contributing factor and often we can't see it because we again have been wired to focus on our survival so I have to survive I can't either feel trapped in this box and I'm going to die in this box or I feel like I want to be in the box and so I'm trying to assimilate myself which is something that I see Asian Americans do all the time is we culturally assimilate ourselves in order to fit in because that's where we get our safety and belongings. So either I'm not safe in the box and I got to get out of the box in order to survive, or I got to push myself into the box and I need to survive. And I always just ask, well, who benefits from this box? Who's either trying to push you into this box or who's trying to make you feel like you're not safe outside of the box? And if we can ask that questions, well, then all of a sudden the framework of what we're looking at is different, right? How do we show up then differently? Is the box even real? Is the box even true? Do I want to be actually want to be in the box? Or do I feel like I need to be in the box because I'm safer when I'm in the box? Do I need to feel like I actually want to be submissive? Or I need to show up that way because that's how I'm going to be safe? Maybe I like to sometimes be submissive, but maybe I want to explore other things too. Maybe sometimes I want to be dominant. Maybe sometimes I want to be switchy. Maybe there are all these other things. Maybe I'm interested in exploring kink, but I was taught that that's what bad people do. And so I can't explore that. And so now there's this whole shame around it, right? And so how do we then step back from and from an embodied place, not trying to intellectualize it, but trying to listen to the wisdom of the body, how do I then ask and try to find out where do I actually want to be? How can I show up and unlearn these things of, like we said in this conversation, of patriarchy, of colonization, of white supremacy? How can we peel back those narratives that my body has absorbed from the world around me so that I can reclaim my fullest, most authentic self? And then in safety with another person who has established that trust and that connection. And that can be on a one-time, one-night thing where you can establish that trust and safety and connection. Maybe it's like, we have this one beautiful night together and it's one thing and it's casual, but we take care of each other and we connect on a deep level and we can share this sexual experience together and this part of ourselves, whatever that looks like. And then maybe we go our separate ways and we never talk to each other again, but there's care and there's safety and there's connection. Or maybe this is a lifelong thing where we have lifelong care and safety and connection. And we're able to continuously keep showing up 
and experiencing and expressing the fullness of our humanity through our sexuality and our sexual experiences together, whether that be with one continuous um, long-term committed partner or whether that be with different partners, whether you're monogamous or polyamorous, right? But then when we're able to operate out of that place of safety within our own body, where we've been able to peel back those layers of what we should be in order to be who we truly are, then we can have that connection in a different, healthy, life-giving way, rather than always feeling like we're coming up against a wall all the time. How does that feel in your body when you hear that? To be honest, a bit conflicted. Oh, yeah. Okay. Tell so me part of it's that. very empowering because you're, what I'm hearing you give permission to and speaking life into is you to trust your body because okay. your body is trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And when your body feels free, then the energy flows and it guides the things you do and the things you explore and how you relate. Mm-hmm. But the fear part is uh, I know I also know how broken my body is so mm-hmm. I cannot just trust my body mm-hmm. and being the being a person that lives in community I need some level of social validation to keep me in check yeah so I can't quite step into that 100% my body is right all the time and then I have some social obligation because I'm married. So sure. uh, my wife is pretty traditional. Mm-hmm. So I want to honor that yeah. uh, out of my um, commitment to her. Absolutely. I think that's really so important. I think that's what I can say to that. But I appreciate yeah. you painting a path towards wholeness and healthiness. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. And it's not wholeness and healthiness is not something that happens overnight. Like, I really resonate when I heard you say like, oh, I'm conflicted because I know that I have a broken relationship with my body. I I don't feel that I can just trust my body off the bat because there's healing that needs to come into that relationship between me and my body. Your body is you and you are your body, but we also have to have this healing between us because our society, the environment that we live in and the intergenerational trauma that we inherit makes us feel disconnected from our bodies remember we talked about all the way back to plato and aristotle these western ideas that like the mind and body are separate and the mind is better than the body and so all the time we have reinforced ideas that we absorb that like our body either isn't good or we can't trust our body or our our body doesn't fit into some ideal or maybe we don't see our body represented or maybe, you know, in the past, I felt like my body has let me down because I, I felt like this was the right thing that I needed to do, but my body was leading me maybe somewhere else, right? And so we feel like we have these broken relationships that we need to come back to. And we can sit here and you can say like, oh, Tara, that sounds really great. This like healthy, fun, expressive, connected, deeply embodied connection where I can live out the full personhood of my humanity in relation to another person and nothing can be off limits and it can be so life-giving and beautiful. You can sit there and be like, that sounds great, but I don't know how to get from point A to point B, right? And that's honest. 
And that's why this work is so big and so important. And again, why sex is everything and everything is sex, because when we when we're wanting to get to that point of that, like deeply connected, juicy, even orgasmic connection with another person where we're able to bring our full selves, mind, body and soul to that connection and play and express and release emotions and all of these things that we can do within a sexual framework with another human or even just with ourselves on a solo level. Solo sexes also can be deeply powerful. And so we want to get to that thing because I really honestly, truly believe that we're wired for that. But there's work involved, right? And that's honest. And that's the inner work that we do as we're peeling back these layers of the things that we absorb from patriarchy, from colonization, from white supremacy, where we also, where we challenge all of these beliefs and we actually, we look at them, we pick them up. Are they, are they even true? How is this impacting me? Is this something I want to carry on? Is this something I want to let go? But also as we look at these things, our body will show us oh, these are the tender wounded parts of us that still have to heal, right? And it's hard and there's brokenness there and that's honest and that's real. And we can't just bypass that because we want to get to great orgasms. We have to be honest about those things too, that there are parts of us that are still healing, that still need care, that still need attention, that are still in pain, that are still wounded. Right. And and this is some of the wisdom of the body again, too, is, again, the mind protects us by sometimes if we go through something that really hurts, our mind will help us forget. That's how our mind protects us and keeps us safe, which is why if you talk to um, trauma survivors or, you know, somebody who has unfortunately suffered um, sexual assault or some kind of sexual trauma, which is never their fault. But you can talk to a survivor of any different traumatic situation and they, the details will start to get fuzzy, right? We know this from a scientific level is the mind helps us forget because it's, the pain is too great to look at. Whereas the body does the opposite. The body holds on to the things that are, that hurt. The body says, it's not mind over matter. I can't just let this go because it hurts too much. Here, look at it. It hurts. And if you can't look at it, I'm going to hold on to it until you. it's safe enough for you to do so. I'm going to keep holding on to it. So that pain or that trauma or that fear or that resentment or that anger or that grief, that disappointment, all the whole spectrum of human emotions, the body holds on to it until it's safe enough to go, oh, you're going to sit here and you're going to be with me and I'm not alone. And whether that be you with your body or you with your body and having a trusted, connected support person who you feel connected to and safe with that's there with you, then now, oh, but the body can release it and it can unpack it. But until that happens, it feels kind of like a scratch on the record player, right? And you keep like, it's a thing that I just... I can't get over and people will tell you, oh, just let it go. Or just it's mind over mind. Just let it go. Just let it go. And you go, I don't know how to let it go <laughs> because the body says I need to hold on to it till it's safe enough to release. And then I need to experience that big emotion, whether it be pain, fear, anger, resentment, fear, disappointment, whatever it is, I need to go through the wave of that. And then I can complete the cycle and it can, I can let it go. And then I can move on knowing that then that experience of going through that cycle 
then allowed me the opportunity to like, that thing was so big and so scary. And I, I was running from it and so resistant, but then I did it and, oh, look, it didn't kill me. Right. And that's when we start to have that healing. And shame is very much that we don't want to look at shame. It hurts. I'm scared. I'm going to be socially ostracized. I'm going to, I don't want to feel that pain in my body because I don't want to feel the shame. I don't want to feel like I messed up again. So I won't look at it, but it stays and it lives in the body until we feel safe enough to have these safe conversations like the one we're having today or be in a safe environment with another human being where we can go, okay, I can tell my story now in a safe place. I can feel that emotion that I've been running from in a safe place. I can let my body do the thing in that in that really painful environment that I felt restricted. Like I felt my body went into freeze and I couldn't move or run away in the way that I wanted to. Now I feel safe enough to revisit that memory because it still lives in my body and complete that cycle that was shut down that I haven't wanted to look at. And now I can let it go. And that's how healing and wholeness actually comes in. It's not something that we can just think our way through. It's not something that we can just talk our way through. Our body has to experience it because our our bodies have experienced every single thing that we have encountered in our human life. And so we have to do that in that healing in relationship with the body as well. Does anyone else feel like they've just been to church yet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's why sex is everything is everything is sex, right? is because it gives us that opportunity to explore all those things that we didn't feel safe enough to before, right? It's one of those most tender parts of ourselves that yes, it's fun and it's orgasmic and it can take us on this whole ride of human spectrum of emotions and we can experience all the parts of ourselves. We can explore our, our shadow side. We can explore our kinks. We can explore, you know, that like tender, sweet, romantic side of ourselves. We can explore all of those parts of ourselves in a safe container when we've done that work, right? Mm-hmm. But sex also is kind of like the kitchen where you prepare that great meal, right? Where you have to do all of that inner work so that you can come to the table and then feast on all of that goodness as well too. It doesn't mm-hmm. just show up overnight. And I think that's the hard thing is that that's what we see represented most of the time in media in pornography. And it's really like we're being sold the fast food version of sex where it's just like, it's going to be hot and steamy and passionate, but we haven't done all of that personal work to right. get to that point where we've sat in the kitchen all day long and we've labored and we marinated the meat overnight. Do you know what I mean? Like we've taken the time to really like pour our love and attention into these parts of ourself so that when we come to the table, we can feast on the goodness either with ourselves or with one another. Right. And so I see so many of these things as they're so interconnected. And that's part of why, I love sex and I love sexuality Mm -hmm. and I love kind of almost being like a midwife or doula with people as they're coming back into relationship with their own body and their body is teaching them all of these things that they needed to work on so that we can get to that goodness and that pleasure and that orgasmic life that we want to live Mm -hmm. that is in our birthright. Our bodies are capable of this for a reason 
It's something we're meant to experience, but we often just don't have that roadmap how to get there. And that in and of itself, because those these important conversations and, you know, having the safe place to do that inner work has been shut down for so many of us. And shame has crept in when we were like, I wasn't able to ask questions. I didn't feel like I was safe and supported. I don't want to look at the pain because it hurts too much. All of these things, that is what creates that shame and blocks us from getting to where we really want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, one thing that, that really sticks out for me um, is uh, learning how to create that, that safe space for ourselves and for mm-hmm. others, right? And in this entire conversation, again, coming from a very conservative and, you know, cis male background and, you yeah. know, Christian background, right? There is all of this judgment, right, yeah. that that's circling in my mind around, you know, everything that's being said and, you know, even the ways that I'm looking at sexuality and sex. And, you know, there's a space in which, you know, I've, I've learned in my own work that uh, when, when we are fearful and, and experiencing judgment um, towards ourselves, that's where we, right, um, project that judgment into the world around us, right? And, and there's this, um, this unsafe experience like you're, you're talking about that we have within ourselves around these conversations and these pieces about sex um, because it's what we've been taught. It's what we've um, developed over time. And, and so there's a lot of judgment that we point towards ourselves, mm-hmm. which creates that discomfort and that unsafe experience. And so in, in really, you know, making uh, these conversations and, and, the space safe, right? We have to remove that sense of judgment. We have to remove those inclinations to say something is, um, you know, worth judging, right? And and in in giving ourselves compassion and curiosity, we really allow ourselves to to explore, right? What um, we really need in order to fully express ourselves, as opposed to being stuffed into these boxes, like you were saying. Um, you hear so much with your your clients, right? Um, it's because there are judgments that we're f- afraid of that we have to feel like we have to defend defend ourselves or make ourselves safe by living within these boxes. And so, mm-hmm. um, I really appreciate a lot of those those aspects of just recognizing, man, we can really erase a lot of shame when we undo a lot of judgment that we ourselves yes. are are experiencing. Um, yeah. And and helping ourselves to, to remove that judgment as we project it into the world as well. So key, so key, because if we start to do this inner work and we look at it, what we discover, what the body shows us with judgment, when we go, oh, why did I do that? Rather than, huh, why did I do that? Where did that come from? Where did I learn this behavior? Where did, what told me that doing that would make me safe, right? If we look at it with judgment, it immediately shuts down the conversation and we can't continue with what the body is trying to show us. But if we look at it, like you said, with compassion and curiosity, it opens up a whole world. And then we're able to go deeper and explore that and find out why am I holding on to that? Okay. And then how do I let it go? Right. Right. Yeah. So important. Thanks for bringing that up. 
I have a quick question. This is probably a bigger question that maybe we can like do like kind of rapid fire or like anyway, we'll figure it out. Um, mental health and sex. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's that's that's not a quick question. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other podcast topic. Oh my goodness. Yep. That's like our next episode. Um, yeah, I'll just say this. It's connected. It's huge, right? Um, these things are not just of the mind, right? And I think that's the thing. One of the things that I see so often, and I mentioned this, is clients will come to me being like, I hit this wall. It does. Is it a low libido thing? What is it? Right. And, and sometimes like it can be, oh, because I have anxiety in my body because I battle depression and all of these things are stemming back from, do I really feel safe? Right. And sometimes this is through, through our anxiety or through our depression or through, you know, the, the different, the ways that the body speaks to us, our body can speak to us through mental health as well, right? Or even the absence of mental health. When I'm feeling anxiety in my body, yeah, sometimes it's a mental health thing that I need to like to pay attention to. But usually even in the realm of mental health, it goes, what is not in alignment in my life that I need to pay attention to. And that is making me feel deeply anxious or that is making me feel depressed or whatever that looks like. However, that manifests is usually the body. The body will tell you with a, with a whole response when something is not working or when something in your life is not for you, be that I'm not in the right relationship or I'm not in the right workplace or I don't have the right friendships or maybe I'm asking too much of myself and I need to learn how to slow down and self-care by putting less on my plate because I, my, my life needs space to breathe. All of these things come up and it's the body speaking to us because there's something out of alignment in our life that we need to pay attention to. And the body will speak to us through subtle whispers and nudges and yet if we aren't trained to learn how to listen to that, because instead maybe our family of origin or our culture has taught us push through, right? And this is a very Asian thing, like keep going, push through, work harder. Um, don't worry about that stuff. Like, sh- like, and yet the body is saying, we need to listen to this. We need to listen to this. I got to show you this is work. This isn't working. This is, this is a thing going on. And it will keep coming up until the body has what we call like a breakdown or a health crisis. And it has illness because we didn't listen to the nudges of the body that it was giving us this whole time. So that can be really, really important for us to listen to. And I see this oftentimes both with with people of all genders, really, not even just saying both men and women, people of all genders who will say, I can't orgasm or I can't be present in my body because I'm coming to the bedroom and I'm thinking about my to-do list. I'm thinking about all, yeah, you guys are all nodding because it's like, I'm thinking about all the things that I got going on, right? So in short, yeah, are, is mental health and our and sex and sexuality, are they connected? Yes, absolutely. And that's not even going into the whole spectrum of, you know, how does mental health show up when our sexuality has been shamed, 
right? You know, there's not a lot of LGBTQIA representation in Asian communities, right? And so maybe that's something that I felt wasn't safe to express in my family, not just the fact that I have a sexuality and I want to be a, the sexual being that I am and I want to connect with people in that way and I want to express the full personhood of my humanity in that way, but maybe the very sexuality that I identify with was never safe for me to do so. Right. And so it's not just about the acts of sex that I want to explore, but the very sexuality that is who I am. Right. And that shame in of itself can create a mental health um, struggle that we battle with. We battle with these parts of ourselves. Right. Because the body is saying there's something here that is out of alignment. And I need you to look at it because I don't feel safe right now. And then it manifests as a mental illness. Right. So Short answer, yes. <laughs> All of these things are interconnected. And I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that that's so important. Um, or even the pressure that we put on ourselves to perform in the bedroom can create that shame or that mental illness, right? Um, we need to perform. We need to be a certain way, whether we, again, we talked a little bit about, you know, either being dominant or being submissive, or maybe we just want to please our partner, right? Like all of these things can become such hurdles for us, right? And if we learn how to come back into and be present in the body, rather than being in the mind, when we're having sex, that can be so important. But again, in order to do that, we have to do the work to feel safe to come back to our own bodies, rather than just living in our minds. So yeah, all that to say, there's a lot there that are very real. It's very real and honest for so many people. And I would go so far as to say, I don't know a single person who doesn't deal with that in some capacity, because that's part of our human experience. Thank you, Tara. Um, yeah, as someone um, who just within this last year, uh, learned that she has anxiety and depression and have had it for a while. And I just started therapy this, um, within the past year. Um, it's interesting to notice the shame that creeps up in me as my libido sort of goes up and down and like even on a relational aspect. Um, it was, so it was good to hear just to think through a lot of that as you're speaking, Tara, because I think I've realized I often, when I think about these things, it is through such lenses of judgment um, and frustration. Um, but I think I'm kind of trying to figure out how to rewire to see all of that as to, as I go deeper in my relationship with figuring out my anxiety and depression, like it's almost as if my relationship with my brain, right? Yeah. Um, which is also part of my body, even though like we've talked about like a lot of, yes, a lot of it's like mind versus body. But I think for me, what I'm trying to do right now is like rewiring and rebuilding this relationship with my brain yeah. and understanding that. And so I'm, I'm making the connections between how that affects my sex life as I'm understanding my mental health better, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. Thank you for yes. that. You're right. And it's because these things were never supposed to be split. Mm -hmm. These things were never supposed to be mind versus body. It's, it's coming back to our whole personhood, right? 
And sometimes our mind experiences, like I said, our mind experiences things in a different way than our body necessarily does. But that doesn't mean that one or the other is worse or better. Mm -hmm. Right? Just that they might function differently, but they're all part of who we are because none of us are just one thing. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. All of us have this full spectrum of who we are. Right? And yet we often don't feel the safety to explore all of who we are. So we stay in the oper- we stay and operate in the places that are seen as good and safe rather mm-hmm. than the fullness of who we are, right? And mm-hmm. I, I wonder even for your um, you know, experience of what you're kind of wading through right now, you're navigating and you're pulling back these layers that you may even find that some of those are contributing factors. There's probably a lot of contributing factors you know, that has created the, the environment that your body is in right now and the way that your body has learned to cope and try to keep you safe. And again, we're not looking at that with judgment right? Like, oh, I've been anxious. Like, why did I do that? Or I've been in depression. Why did I do that? It's how has my body tried to keep me safe through these things? Mm -hmm. And we can look at that and say, oh, you did such a good job through such a hard thing. Right. And how does that change the conversation? Mm -hmm. And then our body goes, yeah, it was really hard. right? It was really hard and it was really scary or I was really hurt or I was really pissed off, right? And then where does the body take that conversation from there when we come back to begin to just listen, Mm -hmm. you know? Thank you. Yeah. George, you have a final word as we wrap up? Yeah. uh, I mean, there, there are tons of, you know, I think helpful therapies that um, can can really you know address some of these these concerns um, and and uh, you know I think in terms of the work that I've done with my clients um, a, a big piece around sex has often been just the emotions right that mm-hmm. individuals experience and um, that's emotional security that exists within. Um, a, a relationship and so when that emotional security doesn't exist right um, we're we're not always thinking about it but um, it, it's what keeps us from being able to uh, really give our physical selves to to others if we think about it right I can I can share a thought mm. and there's you know very little that I have to be concerned about when it you know when things come back but sharing my physical self with someone like there, there are tons of right boundaries and, and issues that come up with that. And if I don't feel safe emotionally to connect with someone, right. And this kind of plays into what you were saying earlier with um, the demisexual, right. Mm. Uh, orientation. Right. But if, if you're not feeling emotionally safe or secure with your partner, chances are you're not going to feel safe to trust them with your physical selves either. Um, and so, um, yeah, just a lot that, that goes into that. And, um, you know, I think it would be really great and helpful if, um, we were able to compile some, some resources to kind of look at, um, you know, how do we address our, our mental health and, and concerns around sex, um, what are helpful therapies to suggest looking into and things like that. So. Yeah, we can definitely all collaborate on, 
on a resource list there. I'm sure that between the four of us, there's a lot of great, um, you know, helpful supports that we could recommend to anyone who is part of this community and listening to this episode right now. Yes, and we'll add that to the show notes at uracingshame.com. Tara Tang, thank you so much for enlightening and enriching us and creating this safe place for us to move towards a healthier expression and experience of all that we are. I think you bring such a powerful and grounding perspective from the body because frankly, you know, for centuries, we have not really connected that very essential part of who, who we are and how we exist in the world. And I'm thinking, you know, even in the internet age, the mind is being, you know, knowledge economy and all that being even again, reinforced and shifting the balance away. And I'm so glad you bring us back to be all that we can be. Tara, what's the best way for people to connect with you? if They want to continue a conversation with you one-on-one. Yeah, no, I love that because there's so much that we inspiration that we can get from conversations like this podcast. Um, and then we're kind of left going, what next? Where do we go from here? Right. So people can find me um, through my website, taratang.com. Um, there's all kinds of information and resources that are on there. But I also offer, uh, you know, free 30 minute one on one consultation. So if anyone wants to have a conversation about what you heard in this podcast, maybe you have some questions or you want to share your personal experience experience, um, we can have that conversation. I offer that free 30 minutes, no strings attached. Or if you want to explore what would it look like to work together one-on-one or through my Patreon community or some of the, you know, group coaching, group classes, or maybe embodied movement meditation is something that um, sparked your interest that, you know, I want to learn how to come back into relationship with my body, but I don't know where to start. And I think I need, you know, some support along the way. I love to have that conversation with you. It's not for me to become some expert or some guru, because I honestly think that no one knows better than you what it's like to live in your body. Your body Mm -hmm. is your teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm not your teacher, Mm -hmm. but I can be that facilitator of the conversation Mm -hmm. between you and your body. So you can learn the skills of Mm -hmm. listening to your body and Mm -hmm. learning to hear what your body is trying to tell you. So that's the work that we do together. Mm-hmm. Um, taratang.com if you want to yes, look for that yes. and you can also find me across social media at Miss Taratang and I'd love to meet you in that social community on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter um, and get to know more of you too. Thank you so much Tara. Uh, Taratang is spelled T-A-R-A-T-E-N-G for those of Correct. you this and on audio and thank you for those that are watching on video and we'd love to be in conversation with you here at Erasing Shame. It's a community Uh, where we can have safe and healthy conversations so that we can do life together and not alone. And that's the path to wholeness and wellness. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Erasing Shame podcast. Check out our website at erasingshame.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please subscribe on any podcast app like Apple, Google, Spotify, or on Facebook and YouTube. And please add a rating, a review, and a share so more people can experience the freedom and healing that comes from erasing shame.